0: As he comes to bring God's word to us, Father, we thank you for this man, uh, a member of our church, an engineer, a father, a husband, uh, a brother, and a friend. And we pray, Lord, that your hand will be upon him of anointing as he unpacks this uh, this name of yours, Father, that we might understand and know you and Jesus better and more deeply. So we pray not only for Tim that your anointing will be upon him, but that you'd help us open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to receive the encouragement that he brings in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> well, good morning, and can I uh, add my welcome to you all. Um, as Claire said, my name's Tim, and i um, Tim, so I'm a, a, a member here at Mutley, and uh, occasionally it's my huge uh, privilege and joy to be able to to to, to speak um, on the um, the uh, on this occasion where we we look at some verses together, and we will in a moment or two presently read Psalm 23. If you're a guest or you're visiting us, perhaps you're on holiday and. Uh, the lake clubs welcome. Good to see you guys, and uh, you're very welcome. And um, uh, it's, a, it's a joy to have you amongst us. So welcome to you as well. I realise it's holiday, holiday time, holiday season, and um, lots of travelling and lots of exciting things. If you are visiting to see and do in Plymouth, so you're very welcome. Um, as Clive said, my my sort of day job. I uh, I spend my time um, as an engineer and. Um, And uh, just just right now, I've got the the, the fun and the privilege of working on some aircraft projects and some some stuff that one day will fly. And uh, so day to day, that's what I do. And then this morning, I'm here. And um, it's my privilege. So welcome to you all. And uh, we've been looking at a series. We've been looking at a series on what's in a name. And um, we've been looking at names for God. And... We're going to read, here we go, this is the sort of the the screen we've been using to gather up our thoughts over, this is number three, and uh, jehovah Rohai, the Lord is my shepherd, and that is what we're going to look at in a moment or two. But, first, we're going to read from Psalm 23, and this is the text for this morning. And uh, let me read it to you. It'll come up on the screen, and uh, and it's from verse 1, Psalm of David, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff they comfort me. You prepare a table for before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil; my cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, the, th- the thing about a passage like this is it's really, really well known. And actually, there are about a hundred sermons in these few verses. Now, the thing today is you're only going to get one sermon. And there is an awful lot to say, and as I've reflected on this, it becomes a re- really hard to think of all the things that you should and shouldn't say. So there will be things that I don't say. Um, and there will be some things that I do say, so I hope you, you understand that. And um, there are lots and lots, there is massive depth and richness in these verses, as there is in all scripture, but I think this one is just a little bit better known than, than many. So, a question for you, question on the screen, and uh, before we, we get into this, and the question is this, okay, um, what is the most Powerful and profound piece of art that you have ever experienced. It's gone quiet. I was going to just think about that for a sec. You don't have to say. What's the most powerful and profound piece of art that you have ever experienced? So for me. It was a few years ago. I went to uh, a a concert. I went to a stadium gig in, what was actually, this is a long time ago, because it was in Cardiff Arms Park, okay? So you that know, you know that's a long time ago. So in in Wales, in Cardiff, and I went to see U2. Now, I I started to say a bit about this in the nine o'clock service, and I realized maybe nine o'clock there's not that many U2 fans, but I, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe. But anyway, so um, I, I think there were a few. But I went to, um, to see you too, and um, it was an open-air stadium gig with probably 90,000 people there. It was an extraordinary experience. The gig itself was, was, was fantastic. Um, uh, you, you know, if you go to... Usually the timing of those sort of gigs, those concerts, are but, you know, usually in the afternoon we would be there for some warm-up bands, you know, and it's, and it's daylight, and then when the main act comes on, it's, it's, it's starting to get dark, and the atmosphere in the stadium builds. And so the entire thing was extraordinary, but there was one standout moment. There was one standout moment for me as a piece of performing art, and it was when Edge, the guitarist, struck up the chords for Bullet the Blue Sky. You know that track? Go and look look at it on YouTube if you don't know the track. But as those thumping chords came across the stadium with every chord, the entire stadium was filled with light. They had some some floodlights, which they hadn't used that thus far in the gig. And boom! with every chord, the entire stadium filled with light. The audience were lit up, the band were lit up. And as the song started, they had these incredible video projection systems where these crosses emerged through these screens, crosses which were on fire. The crosses morphed into different shapes as the song progressed. But it was an extraordinary song, and it was a song that was angry. It was a song that was, I knew a little bit about the track when I heard about it, when I listened to it then, and when I first listened to it. But it's only recently that I saw Bono on the screen interviewed about why that track was written. Bono, the front man of U2, um, explained in an interview that he'd been to El Salvador where there'd been a civil war in the late seventies, early eighties. He was there when bullets were flying over his head. And the thing was this, where seventy-five thousand people lost their lives in that civil war, what he couldn't understand what he couldn't understand was the American Christian support for that war and the arming that the Americans gave the government. He couldn't get that as a Christian. And so, the thing was that he said was this, that he said, I had to find a way, because I didn't have the words, I have a band, I have a band called U2, uh, and I have a band that can express the inexpressible in music. He said, my band attempted to express the inexpressible, the anger, the confusion that he felt having been into that war zone. Expressing... The Inexpressible. If you listen to that track there's an incredible guitar solo that Edge plays which they say is a nod to Jimi Hendrix and uh, it's a remarkable piece of music and uh, but the thing is this they tried as a band to express the inexpressible. Throughout life and culture as we journey through life there are so many times in literature and dra- drama and art where we try and express the inexpressible through metaphor. Yesterday, only yesterday, I was with my kids on the beach in Southampton, um, uh, just looking out over the Solent. and um, they're they're, there now, they're travelling back at the moment, and Molly, who's my six-year-old, she said, Daddy, I am an ice cube. She said, I am an ice... And and we do that all the time. We speak in metaphors. We speak in ways that a, a single... Expression might capture a whole raft of truths. What does she mean by that? She said, Daddy, I've just been swimming in the sea in Southampton Water, and it's very cold. She said, I need a coat and a towel, and the heavens are about to open as this massive dark cloud hovered over us and opened itself all over us, and we got soaked. Well, we didn't have it in Plymouth, but we got it up there yesterday. She said, that little expression is not literal. She said, no, she's not an actual ice cube. She's a six-year-old little girl. But actually, there's a metaphor to express how she felt. David, as he writes these words in Psalm 23, is speaking in a metaphor, in a poem, in words that hide and express a whole raft of deeper truths. When David says, the Lord is my shepherd, and we go on in a moment or two to look at some of the things that he says. And so the challenge for you and me, the challenge for us, is that when we look at a picture like this, God, the Almighty, the creator, the the author of the universe, that David calls my shepherd, there's a whole raft of deeper truths that when we are trying to be biblically literate, we have to kind of unravel and get to the bottom of so as we journey in these next few moments of our understanding and our feeling of what this is all about, let's, um, let's put a, a couple of contextual fundamentals to this. So David's writing, The Lord is my shepherd. And we go on in a few moments to look at three things that I think are key. Now, there are a lot more things than, than three, but we're going to look at three things, Okay. So two fundamental contextual issues. Well, the first thing is this, that in the ancient world, we know that the he- Hebrews were, were, were kind of nomadic and they took their sheep around and looked for different, so they could be fed in different pastures. And so there was this this understanding of how this all worked. David himself, notwithstanding, was a shepherd when he was little. Now he's the king of Israel. And so the whole it was a very natural metaphor, a very natural metaphor, to talk about royalty and other gods as shepherds. Even the Babylonian gods were described in hymns of worship to their gods as benevolent shepherds. Other gods that ancient people of the time looked to were described in hymns of their hymns of worship as shepherds because of their authority, their leading, their care, and so on. So it raises an important question for me. If other, if other ancient parts of the ancient world and, and other gods were described in this way, well, what's different? So that's a fundamental question. What's different in these verses compared to what the ancient world anyway would have described other gods in this way. What's different? What's different? Second, contextual fundamental is this. And um, it's really about, and I suppose it's a bit of a, I'm gonna say it's like a sort of a, a picture book legacy. But actually the picture that sometimes we might be forgiven for seeing that the fluffy sheep and the shepherd picture, where everything is fantastic, is probably not what is being described here. Um, this is my kid's favourite. This is Sean the sheep, and um, I, I just like that. Um, and, uh, this is not what is being talked about here. Okay? Now, why is that? The reason for that is this, is that David... David's life was a pickle. It wasn't squeaky clean. He was oppressed by his enemies. He even describes in here that he walks, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. If you look at the psalm previously, in, 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 in chapter 22, throughout the psalms, there is scattered this angst and difficulty in David's troubled life often with corrupting sin in his life. It's not a squeaky clean image of David um, uh, uh, with this wonderful rosy picture like Sean the Sheep here. It's difficult, it's hard work and uh, in in that Psalm chapter 22, uh, David writes, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The same words that Jesus used on the cross as he was dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You go to the longest psalm, Psalm 119, but it's all 176 verses, with all the great stuff that is said in that psalm. Right at the end, it says, I have strayed like a lost sheep. I've strayed like a lost sheep, wanting God to seek him back. I think um, Colin says a quote from... Spurgeon um, that I'd just like you to put up on the screen with the other sheep. It's the next one, I think. I kind of like this because Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we have a room downstairs named after the great Baptist preacher. And he says this, and it's pretty obvious, the sheep is one of the most unwise of creatures. Now I kind of think that's a bit obvious, we know that. The sheep is one of the most unwise of creatures. You see, the context that we find is David's oppressed by his enemies, he knows oppression and he knows his frailties, and yet here we have him writing this psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. So what's different here? What's different about this narrative? What's different about what David's saying? Well, I think there's three things that I'd like to look at. There's three things to talk about here. And they're, they're going to come up on the screen, Cons, if you just find that. Here we go. Three things. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. And he refreshes my soul. Now, I want to say a little bit more about each of those things because I think this first one is a fundamental difference when you look at other gods who are described as shepherd-like, the difference here is that David said, this is my shepherd, my shepherd. If he's my shepherd, he is close. He's close and he's with me and he carries me. And as Clive said when he, he read from John's gospel earlier this morning, Jesus, the good shepherd, and we read about the shepherd metaphor all the way through scripture. Jesus, the good shepherd, says, and I lay my life down for the sheep. This is the difference. This is the shepherd that will lay his life down for his sheep, and he is close, and he will carry you. You see, this is one of those deep truths. Many of you may think, well, I know that. I've been brought up with this since I was this big. But for some of you, This is something that you need to go away with this morning. You need to go away that your shepherd is close to you. You know, so often I think sometimes we talk and describe about a God who seems somehow distant. God is with you, and He is close, and He gets you. That's the thing. He gets you. I I was thinking, reflecting deeply about this this week, and, and particularly yesterday evening as I drove home from the campsite with the kids still up the road in Southampton, and I was just reflecting again on this, and I thought, do you know what, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to talk about this, and I've got to own this as well, I've got to kind of get this, and I thought about my, my week, which was frankly chaotic this week. You know, we came back from, we had a family holiday last weekend. We were travelling back on Sunday. You know, we landed at some uh, one o'clock in the morning last Sunday. Deborah and I straight went straight off to do different work things. I've been, um, been to Scotland for two days this week and then we've been to Southampton. i have been travelling, it seems endlessly. And then at the weekend, we were, on Friday, I got back to the factory where I'm doing some work at the moment, where everything seemed to go wrong. We packed the car up in chaos and then went camping and then came back to do it. I just felt, you know, I just sort of thought, I just feel chaotic. It's kind of did chaos, but I felt chaotic and I just don't feel I have the time to think about this and I kind of want to think about it more and pray about it more. And then I thought, hang on a minute, the Lord's my shepherd. He kind of gets me and knows his sheep. Isn't that right? Haven't I got to get that? You know, with all my frail, chaotic chaosness, I have to kind of get that the Lord is my shepherd. Next, I lack nothing. What does this mean? I lack nothing. Now, when David says the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. You know, this is it takes a little bit of working through this one because I think often we will say. You know, we we don't have enough of this or that, or we don't have enough money or food, or we are uncertain about how we might pay the next bill. You know, I think what this is saying is that with the Lord as your shepherd, you lack nothing because you have hope. I work at the moment with some incredibly competent people Actually, you know, throughout my working life, lots of competent people that are very good technically and with finance and with planning and so on. And yet, sometimes we can get all our ducks in order and actually, if you have no hope, if there is not an eternal perspective in all that you do, you don't have it. You don't have it. You know, when all is said and done, I I was with them... this week with um, a, a friend of mine he's called Richard and he is uh, a financial advisor he helps Deborah and I and, and works with us on some of our financial stuff I sat down and had a cup of coffee and he's very, we've got a loss in common we talk about all sorts of stuff and he said you know, he's brilliant because he gets all those things organised for us makes sure there's enough at the end of the month to pay the bills but yet he said, he said you know I, I lost two of my clients recently. They, they're in their fifties, they, they died. And he said they had all these plans, and uh, and, I, and I said Richard, you know, we we organise everything, don't we? We get things. But actually, if there is no hope, you see, this is what the verses are saying. You have hope in all of this, and things are organised or disorganised, but when you have hope, you lack nothing. You lack nothing. The third thing is this, and it's on the, it's on the screen, and uh, you'll you find it verse He refreshes my soul. He refreshes my soul and gives you secure rest. Now, when I, I thought a, a bit about this, you know, I find that increasingly there are fewer and fewer places of rest these days. You know, it's different for, for all of us, you know, we all do different things, but I find that actually life seems to get busier, and wherever you go, there's always something to do. Now, personally, you know, that's kind of, you know, well, that's my own fault, you know, because some of you know we're kind of... Building a extension on our house, and it's whenever you go there, there's always a job to do, and um, you know so it's all pretty fraught and busy, and and uh, you know the family are busy and so on, and that you know a lot of that's you know my our, our own doing, but actually life can be pretty restless, and I think it's more of a increasingly a contemporary problem, it's increasingly a temporary problem where. Probably most of us, a lot of us certainly, have got a smartphone in our pockets where the world is deluging us with information. You can't escape your email, you can't escape Facebook, you can't escape notifications about this, that and the other. It's coming to you all the time. And yet, here is a verse that says, this is a God that refreshes your soul, refreshes your soul. My friends and I, I I say this incredibly delicately I say this with great care but I have a friend who um, I've, I've known for years we um, played some sport together and now he's got a couple of kids that at the same school as our kids um, and he's a, he, he's an academic um, psychiatrist and we often talk he's very passionate about what he does but he says one of the contem- one of the contemporary issues that is contributed massively to contemporary anxiety in today's world is our lack of time. So we, we have all the time in the world to do stuff which our labour-saving devices help us with, but actually we don't have that time to sit and rest and have our souls refreshed refresh, because are on the go all the time. He's an expert, he knows what he's talking about. And yet, that is a truth that we find in these verses, that our God refreshes our soul. You know, there is a massive industry now, isn't there? Many of you know there's a massive industry of websites and books about mindfulness, where we can download and buy tools will help us stop and just slow down. And yet here we have it. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing and he refreshes my soul. The literal translation about um, refreshing my soul is that he compels us to It's actually something more than just it happens. It's that we are compelled to have it to rest. It's a brilliant pattern, and it's a pattern that I think is is helpful for so many of us. You know, sometimes I think that when we think about theology, we think about these verses, and, and sometimes the question has to be, so what? The question has to be, Yes, but how? You see, it's nice, isn't it? You know, we can, I can prepare some stuff. We can look at these verses. And my prayer always is that God will speak to each one of us as we look at and open up His Word. And I believe He does that. But sometimes we have to ask the hard question yes, but how? And as I was thinking a little bit about this, a few, a few examples came to my mind and it seems so often that these truths, these truths become more and more profound when we see them through the lens of suffering. See, so when things are going great, you know, actually, yeah, we, can, we can nod to this and we can say, yep, yeah, I get that, but when things are not going so well, this is when the rubber hits the road. And it's my 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 firm experience, which I share with you, is that when you see life through suffering, and I don't, I cannot know what some of you are going through, but this is where this works. I was just a few examples, by way, of, of, of closing here. I remember um, I, I sometimes talk about this a lot because. I had a great time when I was a student at the university here and um, we had a lecturer uh, who taught me marine engineering. He was a very um, he was a, a, a chap who had huge professional presence about him he was very um, very disciplined, always punctual, always very well turned out, but got on incredibly well with his students and um, his name was uh, Mr. Cheesley, and um, he, I very, very much enjoyed being lectured to him for, for three years at, at the university here where, where I was a student. Um, the, some news came through. I think I was in my final year as a student that uh, Mr. Cheesley had had a stroke. And um, we, we got on well enough with him for a number of us as students to go and visit him at Derriford Hospital. And um, when I said he had a, an extraordinary professional presence, a very deep voice, then to see him in a bed at Derriford Hospital, a frail, tiny man, was a huge shock. And I didn't know what his faith was like. I didn't know. You know, we talked about his job, was he was paid to teach us marine engineering. So those other conversations didn't happen very often. But I just noticed, as he was in a room on his own, um, he he was mostly unconscious, but he was able just to wake a little just to, to acknowledge that we'd come to visit. I noticed there was a bookshelf in the corner where there was a few things, you know, they have a jug of water and, you know, some stuff and some of his belongings there was a book on the shelf and it was some time ago and I'm trying to remember, I tried to look up what the book was but the the title was paraphrased something like um, My Time in Your Hands. That was enough for me to realise that actually he kind of had an understanding of what it was to know the Good Shepherd. There was a And we never followed the conversation up. He he recovered to some extent and, and, and retired, and I did see him after that. But just seeing the spine of that book signaled to me that there was some connection with the Good Shepherd. That even though he was to walk through the darkest valley, he would fear no evil. The last story, just, and we're going to close now, is um, a bit more personal, and it was again some years ago when I had a, a phone conversation with my mum, and um, she, um, uh, the sort of woman that she is, she would never say anything until she has the actual information, do you, do you know, and so. When she phoned and said, the test results have come back, I had no idea that she was going for some tests. She said, I've had the test results, I've been to the hospital, and the doctor says that I have cancer. Now, at that point, as a, a younger man, my world fell apart. I, I, I'd never heard any news like that before, ever. And so, for my mum to phone me and say, "Yes, and it doesn't doesn't look that great," was really hard. You know, it really did. It was it was shattering news. Now, I think one or two of you, you know my family, and and the, the the back story is that you know after some time, she she did recover. And so, as a family, we're massively blessed. And I know that that's. Looking around, that's not all of your experience because we were incredibly fortunate that that she she got well. But for a number of years, it was tough. The pain didn't go away. When she, I went to visit and stayed in our family home in Exeter, and there was a. um, I, I stayed in the spare room, and she was in hospital. And I just found. On my pillow, this card, which you can see. And I don't know whether you can read that, I'm looking at my screen down here, but it just says, there's another psalm. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from my fears. And on the back there's a little note. It just said to me that my mum kind of got this idea of the good shepherd. We had no idea what was going to unfold in the coming months, as some of you don't know. But it just said to me, and I've still got it, and you can see it's quite crumpled. This is quite old now. But somehow she got it. She got this idea that God, her shepherd, was going to carry her and never let her go, or us as a family it didn't take the pain, the pain was still hard, it was still tough. It was still, but that was where the rubber hit the road. That was where the rubber hit the road. And so as we draw this to a close, and I think of those sort of, those two examples, I just, my prayer for you is that this will be something that we recognise afresh, with all our frailty, remember, you know, we're the sheep, and we muck it up, and we aren't going to get it right. But actually, the good shepherd is the one that looks after us and makes it work. You know, I think the sheep is, the sheep's never going to get it that right. You know, they wander off. You know, without a shepherd, they'll be all over the shop. And yet, here we have Jehovah Rohi, I am the good shepherd. Let's pray for a second as we just reflect for a minute in the quiet. Jehovah Rohai. the Lord is my shepherd. Father, there's so much more that we could talk about, we could go on and on all day unravelling the, the metaphor, the picture, the poem where you are described as the Good Shepherd, my Good Shepherd, our Good Shepherd, close, where we lack nothing, where our soul is refreshed in a busy um, world that bombards us with so much stuff, you're the one that refreshes our soul. Father, we pray that you would open our eyes to see that that is, that is true now. There's nothing we can do about it. We're the most unwise of creatures wandering around all over the place, yet you are the good shepherd. So, Father, we pray that you'd help us in our closeness of that. It's not so much something to understand, but something to that you would open our eyes to. So be with us, we pray. Help us see this truth for what it is. And Lord, as we seek to have the inexpressible expressed before us, we pray that you would help us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. Amen.